Section 13 of Narrative of the Life and Adventures of Henry Bibb, an American Slave, written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Narrative of the Life and Adventures of Henry Bibb, an American Slave, written by himself. Chapter 13 I am sold to gamblers. They try to purchase my family. Our parting scene. My good usage. I am sold to an Indian. His confidence in my integrity manifested. The reader will remember that this brings me back to the time the deacon had ordered me to be kept in confinement until he got a chance to sell me, and that no negro should ever get away from him and live. Some days after this, we were all out at the gin-house, ginning cotton, which was situated on the roadside, and there came along a company of men, fifteen or twenty in number, who were southern sportsmen. Their attention was attracted by the load of iron which was fastened about my neck, with a bell attached. They stopped and asked the deacon what that bell was put on my neck for, and he said it was to keep me from running away, etc., they remarked that I looked as if I might be a smart negro, and asked if he wanted to sell me. The reply was yes. They then got off their horses, and struck a bargain with him for me. They bought me at a reduced price for speculation. After they had purchased me, I asked the privilege of going to the house to take leave of my family before I left, which was granted by the sportsman. But the deacon said I should never again step my foot inside of his yard, and advised the sportsmen not to take the irons from my neck until they had sold me, that if they gave me the least chance, I would run away from them, as I did from him. So I was compelled to mount a horse and go off with them, as I supposed never again to meet my family in this life. We had not proceeded far before they informed me that they had bought me to sell again, and if they kept the irons on me it would be detrimental to the sale and that they would therefore take off the irons and dress me up like a man, and throw away the old rubbish which I then had on, and they would sell me to someone who would treat me better than Deacon Whitfield. After they had cut off the irons and dressed me up, they crossed over Red River into Texas, where they spent some time horse-racing and gambling. And although they were wicked blacklegs of the basest character, it is but due to them to say that they used me far better than ever the deacon did. They gave me plenty to eat, and put nothing hard on me to do. They expressed much sympathy for me in my bereavement, and almost every day they gave me money more or less, and by my activity in waiting on them, and upright conduct, I got into the good graces of them all. But they could not get any person to buy me on account of the amount of intelligence which they supposed me to have, for many of them thought that I could read and write. When they left Texas, they intended to go to the Indian Territory west of the Mississippi to attend a great horse race which was to take place. Not being much out of their way to go past Deacon Whitfield's again, I prevailed on them to call on him for the purpose of trying to purchase my wife and child, and I promised them that if they would buy my wife and child, I would get some person to purchase us from them. So they tried to grant my request by calling on the deacon and trying to make the purchase. 
as we approached the deacon's plantation my heart was filled with a thousand painful and fearful apprehensions i had the fullest confidence in the black legs with whom i travelled believing that they would do according to promise and go to the fullest extent of their ability to restore peace and consolation to a bereaved family to reunite husband and wife parent and child who had long been severed by slavery through the agency of deacon whitfield but i knew his determination in relation to myself and i feared his wicked opposition to a restoration of myself and little family which he had divided and soon found that my fears were not without foundation when we rode up and walked into his yard the deacon came out and spoke to all but myself and not finding me in tattered rags as a substitute for clothes nor having an iron collar or bell about my neck as was the case when he sold me he appeared to be much displeased what did you bring that negro back here for said he we have come to try to buy his wife and child for we can find no one who is willing to buy him alone and we will either buy or sell so that the family may be together said they while this conversation was going on my poor bereaved wife who never expected to see me again in this life spied me and came rushing to me through the crowd throwing her arms about my neck exclaiming in the most sympathetic tones oh my dear husband i never expected to see you again the poor woman was bathed with tears of sorrow and grief but no sooner had she reached me than the deacon peremptorily commanded her to go to her work this she did not obey but prayed that her master would not separate us again as she was there alone far from friends and relations whom she should never meet again and now to take away her husband her last and only true friend would be like taking her life but such appeals made no impression on the unfeeling deacon's heart while he was storming with abusive language and even using the gory lash with hellish vengeance to separate husband and wife i could see the sympathetic teardrop stealing its way down the cheek of the profligate and blackleg whose object it now was to bind up the broken heart of a wife and restore to the arms of a bereaved husband his companion they were disgusted at the conduct of whitfield and cried out shame even in his presence they told him that they would give a thousand dollars for my wife and child or anything in reason but no he would sooner see me to the devil than indulge or gratify me after my having run away from him and if they did not remove me from his presence very soon he said he should make them suffer for it but all this and even the gory lash had yet failed to break the grasp of poor melinda whose prospect of connubial social and future happiness was all at stake when the dear woman saw there was no help for us and that we should soon be separated forever in the name of deacon whitfield and american slavery to meet no more as husband and wife parent and child the last and loudest appeal was made on our knees we appealed to the god of justice and to the sacred ties of humanity but this was all in vain the louder we prayed the harder he whipped amid the most heart-rending shrieks from the poor slave-mother and child as little frances stood by sobbing at the abuse inflicted on her mother oh how shall i give my husband the parting hand never to meet again this will surely break my heart were her parting words 
I can never describe to the reader the awful reality of that separation, for it was enough to chill the blood and stir up the deepest feelings of revenge in the hearts of slaveholding blacklegs, who, as they stood by, were threatening, some weeping, some swearing, and others declaring vengeance against such treatment being inflicted on a human being. As we left the plantation, as far as we could see and hear, the deacon was still laying on the gory lash, trying to prevent poor Melinda from weeping over the loss of her departed husband, who was then, by the hellish laws of slavery, to her, theoretically and practically, dead. One of the blacklegs exclaimed that hell was full of just such deacons as Whitfield. This occurred in December, 1840. I have never seen Melinda since that period. I never expect to see her again. The sportsmen to whom I was sold showed their sympathy for me not only by word but by deeds. They said that they had made the most liberal offer to Whitfield to buy or sell for the sole purpose of reuniting husband and wife. But he stood out against it. They felt sorry for me. They said they had bought me to speculate on, and were not able to lose what they had paid for me. But they would make a bargain with me if I was willing, and would lay a plan by which I might yet get free. If I would use my influence so as to get some person to buy me while traveling about with them, they would give me a portion of the money for which they sold me, and they would also give me directions by which I might yet run away and go to Canada. This offer I accepted, and the plot was made. They advised me to act very stupid in language and thought, but in business I must be spry, and that I must persuade men to buy me and promise them that I would be smart. We passed through the state of Arkansas and stopped at many places, horse racing and gambling. My business was to drive a wagon in which they carried their gambling apparatus, clothing, etc. I had also to black boots and attend to horses. We stopped at Fayetteville, where they almost lost me, betting on a horse race. They went from thence to the Indian Territory, among the Cherokee Indians, to attend the great races which were to take place there. During the races there was a very wealthy half-Indian of that tribe who became much attached to me, and had some notion of buying me after hearing that I was for sale, being a slaveholder. The idea struck me rather favorable, for several reasons. First, I thought I should stand a better chance to get away from an Indian than from a white man. Second, he wanted me only for a kind of a body-servant to wait on him, and in this case I knew that I should fare better than I should in the field and my owners also told me that it would be an easy place to get away from. I took their advice for fear I might not get another chance so good as that, and prevailed on the man to buy me. He paid them nine hundred dollars in gold and silver for me. I saw the money counted out. After the purchase was made, the sportsmen got me off to one side, and, according to promise, they gave me a part of the money and directions how to get from there to Canada. They also advised me how to act until I got a good chance to run away. I was to embrace the earliest opportunity of getting away, before they should become acquainted with me. I was never to let it be known where I was from, nor where I was born. I was to act quite stupid and ignorant, and when I started, I was to go up the boundary line between the Indian Territory and the states of Arkansas and Missouri, and this would fetch me out on the Missouri River, near Jefferson City, the capital of Missouri. I was to travel at first by night, and to lay by in daylight until I got out of danger. 
the same afternoon that the indian bought me he started with me to his residence which was fifty or sixty miles distant and so great was his confidence in me that he entrusted me to carry his money the amount must have been at least five hundred dollars which was all in gold and silver and when we stopped overnight the money and horses were all left in my charge it would have been a very easy matter for me to have taken one of the best horses with the money and run off and the temptation was truly great to a man like myself who was watching for the earliest opportunity to escape and i felt confident that i should never have a better opportunity to escape full-handed than then end of chapter thirteen recording by james k white chula vista